Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. Uh, the pandemic may be over, or for most of it, it's over, luckily, but um, its memories aren't, its voices aren't. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did a, an interview with Eli Saslow, the prize-winning uh, Washington Post journalist, about what COVID brought out in all of us. He believes it brought the best and the worst. He talked to a lot of people. He has a new book out, or the uh, paperback of his best-selling book, Voices from the Pandemic. A lot of the voices were of great misery, of suffering, of people who got sick and never recovered, or people who lost loved ones. He wrote a little bit about uh, students and young people and their experience of COVID, but their voices were mostly, I think, missing from um, Saslow's book, Voices from the Pandemic. Today, uh, we're talking with Anya uh, Kamenetz, the author of The Stolen Year, which is specifically a book about how COVID changed and continues to change children's lives and how we're going to deal with it. Uh, Anya is joining us. Anya, welcome. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. I keep on... Um, yes, absolutely. Too much A in, am I? Uh, it's Anya rather than Anya. So Anya, um, your book, The Stolen Year, is... Um, uh, 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 a an aggregation of the many conversations you, your the NPR uh, correspondent, have had both with children and parents. So, what exactly is the stolen year, and what happened? So, in the book, I follow five families in depth throughout the year, um, and that's going far beyond the scope of my NPR reporting. And I all I also I visited all of the families in the spring of 2021. Um, I'm talking about the year without school, without daycare, for many families without the uh, basic services that they relied on, such as food, uh, meals at school, as well as um, mental health services and therapies and interventions that the 14% of children who are uh, in special education in the US rely on. And I also look at the kids who really are on the margins, um, You know, kids who came over the border um, during the pandemic and were quarantined in rooms all alone. Kids that were in foster care and were no longer allowed to have visitation with their birth families in person because of the pandemic. Kids that were locked up um, in juvenile justice uh, facilities and were also denied in-person visits with their families for a full calendar year. Um, so the pandemic had its toll on every single person uh, in the world, um, but I, I really make the case that children were really made to suffer um, oftentimes to keep adults safe. When you said they were really made to suffer, does that mean that there are people responsible for this suffering or was it the unintended consequences of short-sighted policy decisions by the authorities, by politicians? Well, I don't think anybody intended harm, particularly to children, but I think that a combination of you know, our disastrous mismanagement of the pandemic itself, right? We can't forget that in the United States we have the highest death rate of any wealthy nation. So anything that we did arguably um, did not work to control the pandemic to save lives. And with a disastrous out of control pandemic with, with more than half the country unwilling to take any precautions, it was very, very hard to establish the leadership and 
honestly, the calm that was needed to uh, say, okay, yes, we can pull together as a society, we can reopen schools, we can reopen childcare. Um, it was done in a very chaotic and haphazard way. And so what you had oftentimes was, you know, in states, in red states that did open their schools um, in Texas and Florida, a lot of children stayed home. A lot of the, um, especially communities of color that had a lot of essential workers, multi-generational households, they didn't trust the schools and they stayed home. And then blue states had, um, you know, essentially the, the same problem, but differently. So California, Washington state, um, they stayed, they kept their schools closed and everybody was stuck at home except for the people that were privileged enough to pay for private alternatives. The election uh, next year might well be fought between Ron DeSantis on the right and Gavin Newsom on the left. As you suggested, Florida and California took very different policies in terms of opening or not reopening schools. As uh, Anya, the smoke begins to clear, uh, who comes out looking the best? Was it DeSantis or, or Newsom? My understanding is that the number of deaths in California and Florida are relatively similar. Uh, and given that Florida didn't shut its schools and California did, does this mean that DeSantis actually, whose policies might have actually been more ultimately more successful, or is that simplification? Um, I think that if you look at it from that perspective, you have to agree. You have to say that having kids in school, keeping the state open um, while protecting elderly people, you know, DeSantis did a much better job of protecting people in nursing homes than, for example, in my state of New York City, my state, my city of New York, my state of New York. Um, so, yeah, there's I mean, the policies that were maybe seemed like they were more aligned with science with progressive values, such as in California, such as in Washington state didn't ultimately pan out. Um, I mean, a lot of people didn't like DeSantis's um, attitude overall, the way he communicated. I don't like the way that he legislates uh, and seems to whip up bigotry um, and harassment, especially of, of LGBTQ kids. But that's quite apart from the question of whether or not some of the largest school districts in the country should have opened and stayed open. And I think that they they should have, and it's good that they did. Anya, do you, do you think that there's difference within you know, we talk about kids, both adolescents and younger kids. We did a show, we've done many shows over the last couple of years about the impact of COVID on, on kids. We did one on the impact on teens with the uh, the author Darby Fox, Rethinking Your Teenage. Is there much of a difference between the impact of what you call the stolen year on uh, adolescents and, and younger children? So I think there's two really big areas of concern. One is in the very young kids, um, the zero to three year olds who are going through, you know, massive stage of brain development. And with this social isolation, the lack of contact with peers, oftentimes the masking, um, there's a lot of concerns about their development. And yes, we're really worried about teenagers. We're worried because they're in a transition time of their lives. They were likely to drift into paid work um, or caregiving responsibilities and out of school. So we've seen a real a downturn in college attendance over the last couple of years. It's truly catastrophic. It's, it's really unheard of in the modern era to have college going dip down the way that it has. Um, and then the loss of meaning. I mean, what I've heard about from, what I heard from teenagers particularly was, you know, they're setting goals. They're starting to think longer term in their lives and these milestones just evaporated. Their timeline evaporated, you know, month after month and year after year, having to say goodbye to things that they're never going to get back. Um, were, was so, so difficult. And so I think for this generation, there's going to be a mark. 
I mean, you use the word catastrophic. Some people might think, well, it's obviously not good. But mm -hmm. for people to have to change their plans for a year and not to get a job, to get a different kind of job, to put off college for a year, to miss one year of school, it's not really catastrophic. It's just the nature of things. And we've become so accustomed to everything working that when something doesn't, like COVID, and it comes along and changes everything, might it be fair to say that some of us overreact and overdramatize these changes? I mean, obviously, if you, if you die or you lose loved ones, it's an entirely different situation. So the permanent impact of the pandemic is in the million lives lost. And, and we can't forget that. We also can't forget there are 200,000 children that were uh, lost one or both parents, and they're going to be carrying that for the rest of their lives. When I say that the downturn in college going is catastrophic, I'm talking about for our economy and society as a whole, because for decades, the health of a society has been indexed to the education level of its uh, of its uh, citizens. And that's because people who get more education go on to earn more money, pay more taxes, they're healthier, they are stay out of jail, they have lasting marriages. There's so many knock-on effects that come from the educational attainment level in a society. And when a country like the United States, which was already slipping down the international tables when it came to educational attainment, to take this hit, this quick hit in college going, it's not a matter. I mean, individuals might get back on track, sure, but... If people don't go to college in the first couple of years after high school, life takes over. And so the, the, the chances that we have a downturn that is measurable in terms of the preparedness of our workforce, I do believe that it's fair to say that's catastrophic. You've written a number of other books on college experience, one generational debt, another one on the test on schools, another one on DIYU. Do you think, um, and, and, and a fourth one on the art of screen time, actually we can talk about that separately, but do you think that COVID has compounded um, the differences between the privileged and the underprivileged when it comes to accessing and getting into college, paying for college, having the time and the luxury to afford to be able to go? Yes, absolutely. We know that it has. The downturn has been concentrated in community colleges, while many elite colleges have seen um, vast increases in applicants. You also, as I said, wrote The Art of Screen Time, Digital Parenting Without Fear. Lots of books about this. We've had many, many conversations about how much access we should give our kids to their smartphones and the screen. What did COVID do to that? Did it make kids more dependent on their phones? Did it mean that they became more addicted to social media and to online entertainment? So I think the term addiction is a little bit simplistic when it, we talk about our relationship to something as ubiquitous in society as screen media. But it's absolutely the case that COVID changed all of our relationships to screen media. Effectively, what it did was it canceled the outside world and it forced so many of us to depend on only what we could get through our screens for learning, as well as for socializing, for shopping and any other thing that we wanted to do. So for our kids, what we're seeing residually, um, we're certainly seeing that kids have gained weight um, from the enforced inactivity, we're definitely seeing um, what teachers are reporting anecdotally is that it is very hard for kids to put down their devices when they're in classes. And that's a two, that's a two pronged thing. One is, of course, they are so habituated right to using the devices. The other is that they may have some lingering social anxiety that's heightened compared to the past. So they're diving into their phones to get out of an awkward interaction, um, which is something I think a lot of us can relate to. So I see this sort of um, 
waning gradually over time. I mean, certainly kids saw that they were able to experience, um, you know, once they were able to get back to in-person activities, maybe the screens weren't quite as alluring as they had been when they were the only thing going on. But we're certainly going to see a, a larger number of kids that develop problematic relationships because of this high period of exposure. What about the school system itself, Anya? Um, we've done, again, many shows on the crisis in the American public education system. Yeah. Did one a couple of years ago with Derek Black, Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. He yeah. argues quite compellingly, in my view, that uh, the public system has already been decimated, particularly financially. I did one last year with Leslie Fenwick on the legacy of Jim Crow and its impact on American schools. She has a new book out, Jim Crow's Pink Slip. How much? I mean, I, I take your point that COVID has compounded everything, made everything worse, but how much worse could it be? It was already pretty shitty in the first place, wasn't it? Um, you know, it's interesting, Andrew. I think that there's been, um, I know this is true in higher ed, and I find it to be true in K-12, that there's an unbroken narrative of decline. So we kind of start complaining about the quality of, of public education in the United States in the 19th century, and then we never stop. And it's like, how did it keep getting worse and worse and worse if it started right. at the bottom? That's right. <laughs> um, but the, the situation that we have right now is that certainly since the 80s, for, so for at least 40 years, um, one political party has seen a political advantage in uh, really undermining the whole enterprise of public education, right? So um, President Reagan campaigned on a promise to get rid of the Department of Education, which had just been um, established under Jimmy Carter. And the relatively weak federal role in public education has continued, but obviously Betsy DeVos was the first education secretary who had never taught in, attended, or sent her children to a public school um, when uh, she, she assumed that role. And she just recently in July um, said, you know, I think the Department of Education should not exist. So it's sort of a nihilistic position, I think, for, for at least one half of the, um, of the political sphere here in the United States, where they really undermine or question the existence of public schooling or the infrastructure of schooling as a public good. They kind of think maybe there should be vouchers, some federal funding, but people should go out and get education kind of however they can. And recently, um, we, we, we don't talk too much about it, but obviously there's been this you know huge campaign um, and I talked about DeSantis earlier to kind of legislate bigotry, to get, um, you know, to attack trans and gay teachers and students. Um, and then um, also these two Supreme Court decisions that are pushing prayer back into public schools and pushing public funding to religious schools. And so the overall agenda um, on the GOP side is really not to have public schools. Um, and that's been their agenda, at least since Brown versus Board of Ed. That's pretty radical thing to say, Anya. You, it's, it is a completely, so, it is so just, what, so it's what just they want to replace it with no school at all? Well, Mil Mil Milton Friedman in 1955 called for a voucher, a voucher system. So take the funding and parcel it out. But the, the farther but position- the voucher beyond, system is still public in a way, isn't it? But I there's mean, no schools. It might be public, but there's no schools. You take the money, but who operates the schools? Anybody. That's the ultimate position. And then from there, the libertarian position is a full liability society, which means if you have children, you are responsible for educating them, period. And that's the system that we had in this country before Horace Mann established compulsory education in the late 1800s. So it hasn't been forever. a long time ago. So you think that the Republicans want to go back to the, the late 1800s? Uh, in the, uh, the CPAC conference, they did a poll and they said, what are the biggest threats to our country? Are they external things like external countries like Russia? 
and they listed public education. The, 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 the people at the conference, these are Republican activists, listed public education as one of the top three internal threats to the country. And you're doing a bit of a Fox News thing here, though, Anya. I mean, you can always find loonies at CPAC. I mean, these people are crazies. They're not real Americans, are they? <laughs> Who am I to say who's a real American? Good they're point. voters. They're citizens. Your book was uh, reviewed in Reason, and uh, mm -hmm. you, it says that you, you refuse to hold anyone responsible. But it, it sounds to me like, in a way, you're making the Republicans responsible. Uh, um, I actually don't think it's that simple. I mean, like I said, I think I think Ron DeSantis did uh, a good job. He should have opened schools and he did open schools. I don't think Trump was much help because all he said was all he did was yell and scream and tell people to open the schools. And I don't think Fauci was much help because he wasn't very clear about whether the school should be opened or not. So, you know, I think there is a lot of blame to go around. And, you know, the Reason Review basically was complaining that I didn't credit uh, potentially, you know, a few moms here and there that called for schools to be open, but I don't think that they were very effective. Yeah, it's funny that you you credit the scientists because the New York Times review suggests that you you play to all the stereotypes: Trump being horrible and incompetent, uh, soccer moms privileged and complicit, Republicans entitled. I didn't I didn't use the term soccer moms in my book, so right. I don't really understand where so, she's getting but I, that. But I'm giving you the opportunity to actually kind of correct the New York Times review because the yeah. fact that you're crediting DeSantis actually reflects the fact that the, the book is, is a little bit more surprising than some people might think. Um, what I spent my time doing was talking to families, teachers, parents, kids, and to experts who are researching the problem in real time. And what I, what I was trying to do was document the harms to kids. So the book's not a whodunit, and it's not a polemic, and I didn't do forensic accounting of what decisions were wrong and right, and who did what when, and who went to what meeting on what date. That's just a different book, and you know I understand that there, both of the reviews that appeared um, are really from people who were personally affected and hurt by school closures, as I was, and feel the need to hold people accountable. But I honestly just think it's more complicated than that. I don't think any one group of people is powerful enough to be held to blame for why we in the United States seemingly handled this worse than anyone else in the world. And you're looking back retrospect. I know it's easy to, to look back at everything retrospectively, but thinking about the story that you've covered in the stolen year and you've been up close to, to COVID and, and, and kids now for a couple of years, is there anything really surprising that you wouldn't have expected? Something that still makes you scratch your head? Um, I mean, it's a really good question because I think if you go through a catastrophe like the one that we've had with the pandemic and you go through it with all of your personal assumptions intact, there's something wrong, right? Because nobody could have seen this coming and nobody could have seen that it would have been as bad as it was. I honestly am surprised that progressive precincts and places didn't figure out ways to put children first. I think there were gestures toward doing that, but I don't see them, I didn't see them actually doing it. I saw them really caught in a trap where, you know, what would have been the clear, obvious thing to do, like, to close bars and open schools somehow became politically untenable. And so we saw two types of cities in the United States, one with everything open, and then one with closed schools and open bars. 
That's and surprising to me. And you're suggesting that you're kind of almost su surprised in yourself that the progressives in this sense, by closing everything, might have got it wrong. I think that uh, it was wrong to reopen with no precautions, and it was wrong to mock people who wore masks. And I think it was wrong also to not prioritize children when you're thinking about what are essential services in society. So I think there's, you know, it's, I know it's unsatisfying, but I just don't look at things in binary terms. And I see that there was a lot of wrong to go around. And can we learn anything? I, I don't want to encourage you to talk about how great Denmark is or Korea or Taiwan, but can we learn stuff from other countries in terms of their treatment of young people and their, their confrontation of COVID? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, there are countries all over the world that did a better job communicating that they prioritize children, um, some by simply handling the pandemic and reducing transmission to the point where it wasn't a controversy to open schools, which is obviously the preferable path. But in the UK and in Western Europe, um, they did communicate that schools should be open preferentially to other public accommodations. And that's what I think we should have done here. Are we over it, Anya? Do you think that it's in our rearview mirror now, COVID, or is it still there? Are we simply not willing to confront it because we're so sick of it for one reason or another? Um, it's unsettling the number of people that continue to die of COVID every day, um, especially considering the idea that we've seemed to have abandoned all restrictions and nobody has any appetite to return to them. So, uh, you know, from those two things, I guess what I would say is that it looks like the attempt to kind of combat COVID from a public health perspective in the United States seems to be pretty much out of gas. And I don't really know where that leaves us as a society, to be honest, because I know that there are people who fear for their lives every day. And there's a far larger number of people who really just want to get on with their lives. I have a couple of kids, who both affected, not dramatically, one high school and one college. My sense is that they're always going to think of themselves as part of the COVID generation for one reason or other. Do you think that's true? Do you think the kids who you talk to for whom their year really was stolen, do you think they're going to spend the rest of their lives thinking about COVID and being impacted by this year? Or do you think they're going to be able to get beyond it? You know, it's really interesting. Um, I grew up in Louisiana and um, so Katrina really shaped my young adulthood and I covered it as a reporter. And there's a documentary that just came out about, it's called Katrina Babies. And it's about the impact on kids, people that were babies and little tiny kids and that are now grown up people, um, young, young adults, teenagers. And a lot of them don't have a name for what happened to them. They don't have all of the information or the knowledge about what they went through um, because it's, it's, you know, kind of pushed into the past. But I do see the impact on those kids, the kids from New Orleans, the youth in New Orleans. Um, and I think that we're gonna see something similar. I mean, either we talk about it all the time, but I think history suggests that we're gonna to wanna to put it in the past. And so there's gonna be a lot of kids who think that there's something wrong with them or they did something wrong. And that's why they are this way. Um, and I worry about that, but I also think the kids have a huge capacity to recover and to be resilient and even to grow through adversity. And so, there may be some good things that come out of this experience, especially for some kids. So is your advice to forget or to remember? Both. My advice is my advice is absolutely to tell the story and to remember and to put it in its proper place. I think that we get through difficult experiences by telling the stories. Finally, Anya, the New York Times uh, 
suggest you end on a hopeful note calling for post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. The reviewer, though, says that we need new stories. What kind of stories do you think we need in terms of what we learned from COVID? Well, I think that there were, uh, and I think she mentions this also in the review, that there were bright spots. There were people who were creative and responding to challenges. There were people that got fed up and didn't want to take it anymore and were ready to live in a truthful way. And you see this in the great resignation, right? Um, and you also see it in families that created their own schooling alternatives, um, you know, or even helped transform their own public schools and teachers that tried to respond to the moment. So, you know, what I'm doing as I go around the country and I speak to different groups is really encouraging people to think about how they responded in an innovative way and in a smart way and in a creative way to all of these challenges. So your message to both kids and parents is, is innovate? You know, figure out the things that you did, the personal strength. This is, this is by the way, this is textbook on post-traumatic growth. So you find your own personal strengths that you build on, then you build on those and you express appreciation and gratitude for the people that helped you and you strengthen your relationships and then you help others who've been through similar situations. And you never stop telling the story. Well, this is the way we can steal the year back or grab the year back, the stolen year, how COVID changed children's lives and where we go now by Anya Kamenetz, full of surprises. I think the review in the New York Times wasn't entirely fair. That was probably the more surprising review. Um, Anya, congratulations on the new book. Uh, what else are you reading these days? I hope you're not only reading about COVID. No, I just finished a great book called Healing Resistance. It's a primer on uh, Martin Luther King style nonviolence and how it can be practiced um, in communities, in among activists, and really as a way of life. So it's a really interesting book.